we're going to see in chapter 2 is the physical and spiritual rescue of this rebellious prophet through the most unlikely means. And even this is an unusual chapter in Jonah. We have a verse at the beginning that says, you know, the next part of the narrative, what happens. We have a verse at the end, which says, three days later, what happened. But the whole bulk of this chapter is Jonah's prayer to God. And so here, uh, chapter 117 through um, chapter 2, this is what happens. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Father, as we hear what your word says in the second chapter of Jonah, as we hear the amazing work that you did in preserving one man, in securing your mission, in changing a heart, um, Would you give us ears to hear what grace and mercy you pour forth all the time? Would you give us eyes to see this glory of yours um, that shines in this grace and mercy? Would you give us hearts that are willing to hear what you say and then respond appropriately, changing where we need to, doing what we have to? We can do this only by your grace and your mercy, and so we trust you'd help us in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so like I said, this is, um, this is kind of an unusual chapter. One of the things, though, that sticks, stands out in uh, chapter 1 to me is how God uses one act, or like this series of things, to affect all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. And it made me think, I mean, this happens, if you reflect on your own life, you probably see this in your own life. You know, we're looking forward to summer camp and the youth group. And when you're at a summer camp or a conference or even in church, one message can save the soul of a sinner who turns his or her life to the Lord and changes that life forever, for, uh, forever. Others, by that same message, might see sin or spiritual laziness and recommit themselves to the Lord. Others kind of just see the glory of God and rejoice in that. Even souls, like at a camp or at a conference or whatever, can be knit together in a way that you have found this, this friendship for life that wasn't there. And God is, and even counselors themselves who are serving are, are being trained by God for future work or are being, you know, helped in other ways. In, by, in this one moment of time, God works all of these things together for the good of all of these different people. It's an amazing thing. We're sending these, um, our, our team down to Mexico, and same thing. I expect these families that they're helping are going to be blessed. I expect that the people that are going to receive them down there are going to be encouraged. I expect that the kids that are being ministered to in VBS are going to hear the word of God. 
And I expect that the people that we're serving are going to be blessed in various ways as well. God can and does all of these things all at once. And of course, what we see here, what God is doing is he's training Joah, Joah, he's training Jonah. He is um, showing his glory to saviors. He's bringing his word to Nineveh. So he's doing all of these things. And so uh, as we get into this, just, just consider sovereign grace is a great word to consider all these things under. Think of all the things that the Lord does all at once. So we're going to start with verse 17, and I guess let me just go. So verse 17 of chapter 1 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And so what happens to Jonah? He's cast into the sea. Who knows how long he's in there? He might be in the sea for you know, minutes, hours even, you know, fighting the sea. But at just the right moment, this fish comes and swallows him. It says that the Lord appointed this fish, or it says the Lord had previously appointed that fish. Other translations say he arranged for the fish. He prepared the fish. He designated a fish. Or even he commanded a great fish to swallow Jonah. And so imagine that you're Jonah. You don't know what's going to happen, right? So you're in the sea. You're flailing around, you know, kind of in the cartoons. One, two, three, he goes under. The fish swallows him up. When he went into the sea, it sounded like he was ready to face death. You know, I don't care. I'm just going to go into the, I'm going to get it over with, face death. But as he gets into the sea, as he's swallowed by this great fish, and we don't know what it is. Maybe it's a whale. Maybe it's a big fish. Maybe it's a warm-blooded whale, and he's kind of, it's stiflingly hot. There's whatever, I don't know, goo or acid or what goes around you. I imagine if you're in a stomach, it's probably like a balloon, right? It's kind of constricted like, a, like the ultrasound pictures. Um, but he's, he's in there, maybe just gasping at the little air bubble to get his next breath, right? Same thing if he's in a fish. Maybe it's, it's, it's very cold. But for three days and three nights, I mean, this is really torture. This is a picture of hell, right? Imagine this, three days and three nights. And after a while, he might have been going through his head, oh God, what have I done, right? He, he, when you're in this kind of physical distress, considering, you know, I have defiled the true and the living God, right? I hated the thought of taking your word to these people to the point that I tried to run and flee your presence, and now he's starting to feel the effect of, of fleeing God's presence. It's as if... I couldn't just die in the sea in a couple of minutes, but you've put me into this, into this living hell that maybe I am in hell. I don't know what's going on. Three days and three nights, he could be dozing off to sleep, thinking, I guess this is it, just to wake up again back in that same situation. And if you hadn't read the rest of the book, you know, what would you be thinking? What would your natural reaction be? Is Jonah in a place of judgment or mercy? Or judgment or mercy, right? Is he, is he one of God's people? Is he preserved? Is he being preserved? Or... Is he lost now? Is he outside? Did he finally step so far that God's going to just let him go? From the circumstances, these darkest possible circumstances, it's pretty tough to tell, I would say. But we'll see that in, even in these darkest possible circumstances, his faith is rekindled. And what we're going to see here as we get into the real chunk of this chapter here is Jonah's prayer in two parts. Jonah, something happens in his heart. He goes in, and within these three days, he comes out a changed man. Something went, something clicked, the lights came on. What happened? What affected this change in Jonah? And so we're going to look at this really in, in two parts. First, the first half of the chapter is faith crying out to a Savior. He sees his circumstances and cries out. And the second part is he is rescued and he exalts the Lord. So in verse 2 it says, well, it's, um, chapter, I guess verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So three days and three nights, 
It says, then Jonah prayed. Did this happen at the beginning or the end of the three nights? I don't know, but it's probably, it took a while for him, his spirit to finally come to this point where he is, he is repented. So he's been in the fish three days and three nights and he prays. He call, he, he's, so he's in there at this point. Of course, he's not writing it down at this point. I'm sure he remembers his prayer and he writes it down a little bit later, but this is what he says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me and out of the body of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. When he says out of the belly of Sheol, it's almost like the word for hell, the place of the dead, right? I was, I was in this place where I was as good as dead. I cried out and you heard me. So we've already imagined like the sensation of kind of getting into the ocean, nearly drowned and swallowed by a fish. But um, what do you do in that point? The central and key verse in this, whole, in this section between like verses two and verses six is verse four. Um, and what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of bounce around and center in on verse four. So first, consider his physical distress. Verse five, it says, he says, the waters closed in over to me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Right? So he's feeling, this sounds like just a drowning in the depth of the sea. Um, description. But it's not just that he was in this bad situation in some case. Look at verse um, 3. Was he just cast in there by some sailors? Was it just bad luck? No, it says, he's praying to God for you. Cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He recognized that he was under the hand of mighty God. At that point, maybe he's not sure if this is God's gracious hand, or if this is the hand of God's judgment, but he recognizes the God that I serve is the God who placed, placed me there. Matt pointed out last week that sin is like a hard heart in this. It makes you blind. It makes you irrational. Um, you can deliberately take the words of God that, or like just obvious circumstances that are going on and just almost uh, deliberately misread those, rationalize things away. Um, make them mean the opposite of what they actually mean. That's what sin does. It takes these situations and it reads them in the worst possible light or apart from the truth. But faith does the opposite. What faith does is we hear the words of God and we believe those words to be true. By faith, we look at circumstances in the world. We don't see a bunch of randomness or coincidence or human wisdom, but we see behind everything a wise, a faithful, and a good God. And so it's not to say that we understand everything, but what faith does is it says, I don't understand everything, but I trust you, God. And what we see here, what's going on here, if you, if you were to look into your Bible, and a lot, a lot of our Bibles have little cross-references. Um, I guess mine doesn't here, right? But a lot of them have little cross-references that says, hey, this sounds a lot like this, or this comes from this. What Jonah is doing here is he is quoting a bunch of psalms. And in fact, the reason why I've titled this A Song of Salvation is because this reads like Jonah's psalm. He talks just like David talks or the other psalmists talk in the psalms. God, what is happening to me? I'm in the pit. In fact, there's even words that are used in there like the billows are washing over me. I'm drowning. And the psalms don't mean it literally, right? This is this, this, this feeling of the soul of being overwhelmed by the chaos. In Jonah's case, though, I think he, 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 he hears this and he says, this is, my, this is me. He is a prophet. He is a man who knows God's word. He knows these psalms by heart. So what's happening here is God's word is getting into Jonah in the belly of the fish. He's recalling what God has said. He's recalling what's happened, what the psalmists have said, describing their experience. And what do they say all the time? I am in the pit. My foot had almost slid. And they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would hear. 
And so the difference between sin and hard-heartedness, which turns away from what the Lord said, what the Word of God says, or what circumstances are telling you, and faith is that we don't understand always, but we do trust. And it reminds me of in John chapter 6, Jesus says some hard things. This is, you know, this is when, you know, he says, I'm the bread of life. But he says things like, I am the bread of life that came from heaven. No one can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. Anyone who feeds on this flesh and drinks this blood abides in me. He said things like that, and the people are like, this is a hard saying. Who, who can believe this? And those who are just following along for the miracles, for the, for the food, they start to walk away. And you remember when he turns and Jesus asks the 12, and he says, do you want to go away as well? Remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God, right? He said, basically says, yeah, I don't get it either. I think that's what he's saying. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't understand this either. But you know what? What I do know is I know who you are. I know you have the words of eternal life. Faith says, um, I don't understand, but I know that you're trustworthy and true. And so in his physical distress, all of this is like these circumstances, these words of the Psalms, these words of, um, from God are coming into Jonah and he's understanding, I have read this whole thing. I've read this whole thing wrong. What he does, to move on to the next point, his spiritual distress, his physical distress is one thing. Sometimes it's the kick in the pants that we need to consider what is going on in my life. Sometimes internally we can sort of block or ignore the chaos that's going on inside. But sometimes God gets our attention by a physical or an external distress. But really, to put a finger on what, his, what has got Jonah to the point of repentance is his spiritual distress. In verse 4, he says, reflecting on the situation, I, I'm driven away from your sight. This is what the real problem is. This is, it's one thing to say, well, I'm in the ocean, I'm going to die. In fact, he was willing to do that until he got into this position when he realized not only am I in this dire physical situation, I've wanted to flee the presence of the Lord, and now I'm getting what I asked for. And so he's reawakened by these, by these psalms. And so you don't have to be in a fish literally facing death to understand this kind of spiritual, spiritual distress. Consider like what, it's, what it means to be enjoying the presence of God or just knowing the presence of God. Sometimes we live our life in this good place where it's like, I know God is with me. I am with him. I'm spending time with him regularly. I'm with him. There's other times where I'm kind of, things aren't so bad, but I'm just a little bit distant. And there's all the way down to, I don't know. I don't, you know God, where are you? What is going on? And you come to that point. Psalm 88, in fact, Jonah's reminded me of Psalm 88, where the psalmist there says, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. And if I skip down maybe to verse 7 here, or 6, you've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. This is the psalmist crying out to the God that he trusts, and he's getting no answer. All right, this is this, you know, dark night of the soul that they say. And sometimes Jonah is in this point because of his own rebellion. He wanted to flee the presence of the Lord, and he's getting what he asked for. There's other times where this just, just living in this sinful world, our own weakness, it just, it, we end up in this place where it seems like, is God, or God, are you even there? Why? Is this real? My life is chaos. My soul is, is fainting. My soul is troubled. Why? How long? 
But even in Psalm 88, where there is no rescue written down, there's hope. And you know why there's hope? Well, there's hope because he still calls on the Lord. While there is breath in our lungs, there is hope. While we can hear the word of God, there is hope. And I'm, I mean, I'm glad that you are here today and you're hearing the word of God. Wherever you are at, God is meeting you with this part of his word. So Jonah doesn't know what's going on. He's crying out in his distress. But does he realize that God's already at work, right? He's in the ultimate dire strait here. Does he realize that this very fish that is his torturer is actually the means that God used to save him. So remember that God appointed this fish before Jonah even got thrown off the boat. I don't know how long. He could have done it years ahead, right? But he set up this fish. He set up the the storm. He set up the situation so that it would all come together. Jonah gets tossed off the ship. But Jonah doesn't know any of this. When When I was eight or nine years old, I played Little League Baseball. And my dad was the coach. And so he'd come home from work early so that he could coach. And he came home, I couldn't find my baseball glove. And my dad didn't have much quarter for <laughs> someone who's lost his baseball glove, right? I don't know where it is. My room's a mess. Everything's all over the place. I'm crying, right? I don't know where it is. And I prayed. Now, I wasn't really, a, I didn't really know God well, but I knew to pray. So I prayed, send mom home because I know she knows where it is. And, <laughs> and sure enough, she drives right up. And she's like, she cleaned the room or she found it. But it, it struck me as a nine-year-old, it struck me that I prayed and God sent my mom right then, right then. And even then I reflect on all, if God sent my mom, he didn't just send her like when I prayed, he sent her from wherever she was, you know, 15 minutes ago so that she could wind up at home so that my prayer could be answered when I needed it. And it was kind of an amazing thing. All that to say is when you're in deep distress, physical distress from circumstances in the world, or even um, spiritual darkness and distress where it seems like you're praying and it's just, it's kind of bouncing off the ceiling. God may already have sent the means. In fact, what you're going through might actually be his, his plan for doing good in your life. And so in this case, God used this physical and spiritual distress on Jonah um, to cause Jonah to cry out to God for his life. So all of this comes together. He's overwhelmed and he cries out. And so the cry of faith, the cry of faith. And so this is it. So finally, at the center of this first half of the psalm, right? So verse two to verse six. And if you kind of go right to the middle is verse four. And he says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple, right? This is his cry of faith. And it might sound a little bit sort of esoteric to us, but think about, let's think through this. Jonah is turning to God in the way that is made available to him, the only way that he knows how. So what is the temple? What is the temple to the people of Israel? Right? It's the big, glorious building that's built on Mount Zion, and it represents the presence of God. God said, I will be among my people, and he was, like in the tabernacle, and he traveled around with his people, and then finally the temple was built, a permanent place for God's presence. But not just a place for God's presence. This is a place where God's mercy Shown. This is a place where people could come and worship and meet with him. But not only that, how did his people worship him? One major way that they worshiped him was by offering sacrifice. In fact, the psalm that Charlie read before, it talked about offering sacrifice, and it might sound weird to our ears. How can I pray a psalm where I offer sacrifice? We'll come to that. But this is a place of God's mercy. And so when Jonah prays to God, he cries out in these circumstances, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple— He is reaching out 
to God. He's taking what he knows about the Lord that he's already known. He's recalling it, in his, in, he's recalling it and he is, he's crying out, I need your mercy. I have been rebellious. I have been stubborn. I've been hard-hearted. I deserve the watery grave that I've apparently been sent into. And yet, yet, he knew who God was. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He knew all of these things. And so he looked to that place where that love comes from. And when we talk about God's love, it's not just God loves, which he does, but he shows mercy through these sacrifices. God made a way that he doesn't just love, but he loves righteously. He made a way so that, that through, at the time, through this sacrifice of an animal, for the sacrifice, the death of this substitute, he could overlook, he could cover over sin for a time and welcome his people in. And that's what Jonah was, was looking to. He says, yet I shall again look at your holy temple. That word yet is a really powerful word in this, in this little verse, right? Again, it contrasts. Where is he? He's in this place of disobedience. He's in this place of, you know, some, again, when we're in these dark places, sometimes it's not really our own fault. There's, there's things that happen. There's, there's wayward children. There are, there's abandonment. There's abuse. There's things that just sort of happen. But Jonah can't claim that. Jonah is willingly, deliberately running away, and yet he can, he can call out. And yet he trusts in these promises. This makes me recall when Solomon dedicated the temple. There was throughout throughout this the covenant that God made with his people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. But you must be faithful. You must be true. But God knew the weakness of people. He knew that that they were not going to be true. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, this is in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon after that dedication. He said, I've heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And he says, like when I punish the people, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, right? When I am showing my judgment on the people, when the people have sinned. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and they pray and they seek my face and they turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Right? This, this is where God directed his people to gaze. This is where people were to pray to, to, to repent to. And in fact, um, Daniel, when he has his famous, you know, chapter 9 prayer, when he realizes this 70 years of exile is almost over, it says, Daniel, he kept turning toward Jerusalem. There was no temple left anymore. The temple was destroyed. But knowing God's gracious promise that if if his people would turn, if his people would repent, if his people would just turn back to him, he would be gracious to forgive. And so that's what Jonah is doing. He knew, um, it, it seemed like he was in hell already, but again, where there is the word of God, there's salvation, there's hope. Where there is faith, there's hope. Where there's repentance, there's hope. I'm editing a little bit. Um, so again, just to kind of maybe close on the word yet. I mean, it, it's such a powerful thing when you read through this thing, when you're, when you're considering where do I stand before God? You know, do you, you've, you've heard it said that like either sin will keep you from, you know, this book or this book will keep you from sin or sin, sin will keep you from prayer or prayer will keep you from sin or any variation of that. I know the feeling of being in some kind of a sin, bitterness, 
whatever, right? Being in some kind of sin, and I, it's like, I can't read the Bible right now. I can't pray right now. Um, and this is, a, this is a call. This yet is yet even, even in this great sin, even when you have no claim in a sense, you feel like you have no claim on God's mercy, we can claim God's mercy, right? Because God tells us. It, it made me think of a number of people that God had called out of darkness, people who had no claim on him. But what did they do? They each cried out to him. And so here's a few of the people. There was a jailer in Philippi, right? Paul and, Paul and Silas were, you know, were in trouble. They were unjustly thrown in jail. They're putting stocks in the deepest part of the prison. They're singing praises to God at night. The jailer's just sitting there. There's a supernatural earthquake. So between listening to these guys praising their God, experiencing supernatural earthquake, realizing his life is forfeit from a Roman, a Roman perspective, but Paul says, look, we're here. Don't harm yourself. And he just says, what do I got to do to be saved? He cries out. He has no claim on God. But what does God do? God hears his cry. He hears, and then God gives him the gospel through Paul and Silas. Another one, the word yet, the Canaanite woman. You remember the Canaanite woman? Jesus and his disciples were outside of Israel, and they're just kind of walking along, and a woman comes up and says, Lord, son of David, um, my daughter is possessed by a demon. You know, kill her, cast it out. And he just ignores her. And she keeps going after him. The disciples say, get rid of her. You know, she's bothering us. And, and Jesus says to her, do you remember this? He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, right? You're not one of my people. I'm here for my people. You're not one of my people. And remember what she says, yet, yes, Lord, yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table, right? I have no claim on this mercy, this amazing grace, yet I trust. The thief on the cross, who at first was even cursing along with the other thief at Jesus, he turns to the Lord and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had no claim on Jesus at all. And even the apostle Paul, one of God's Israelite people, when he was finally stopped in his tracks and struck down, he was blinded. Um, he, when he was finally called, for the rest of his life, he saw himself as chief of sinners, unworthy to be called an apostle because he had persecuted the church. He knew that he didn't bring anything to the party, and he, but he rather counted everything that he had as no advantage. All that to say is he had no claim on this grace of God. So, yet shall I again look on your holy temple, right? Never be discouraged from turning back to the Lord. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I won't read it, but I, um, I like I often like, love to point out Luke 15, the lost sheep, the, the shepherd loses the sheep. He goes after the one, he brings it back. And you remember the shepherd's reaction when he finds that one lost sheep. He puts it on his shoulders and he says, he tells his friends, rejoice with me. That sheep that was lost is now found. And the kicker is when it says, <clears throat> it says, I tell you, Jesus said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons with no repentance, right? The amazing thing is, is that it's not that just that God forgives. It's not just that God says, well, I guess you say you believe in Jesus, so I got to forgive you, right? It's, his, it's almost as if he says, I've been waiting for this moment. He's like the father who throws his arms around the prodigal son, doesn't even let him finish his full confession and just, just brings, him, brings him on in. That is the joy with which the Lord receives your repentance. So never, um, never be shy about that. Okay. Bear with me one second, because I think I got a little out of control here. So, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He looks to God alone to save. 
He looks toward God's promises, which he made in the temple. He continually, yet again, I will look at your temple. He continually looks. He continually repents. And then finally, I shall look. He resolves. He's committed, right? This is a life change. So this is faith crying out to the Savior. Next, the second half of the, of the prayer is this, faith exalting the Savior, right? So one of the natural reactions is when God performs a great rescue, the natural reaction is to praise God and, and to praise God in the presence of other people. And so the, the second half is this praise of God, and we're going to look at just a few things pretty briefly at how does Jonah praise God? How does he look back on, on his salvation story here and, and praise God? And so starting like in the second half of verse 6, he says, Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Right? He acknowledges that God is the Savior. He had nothing to do with it. In fact, Jonah's in a great position that he had nothing to do with it because not only did he bring his sin with him, but he was you know, stuck in a fish. Nothing he could do. He didn't make vows and say, God, if you only get me out of this fish, then da-da-da-da-da. But rather, he saw God as Savior. Next, um, he praises God as the God who hears. Verse 7 says this, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Now, this sounds kind of familiar, but my life was fainting away. David, like, if you recall in, um, in Psalm 32, David is reflecting on his unconfessed sin for a time. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You know what that feels like? Have you experienced that? Right? It, again, it could be your own sin. It could just be spiritual oppression of some kind. But it's just life-draining. Life and while he did not confess his sin, he might have looked pretty good on the outside, but his bones were like rotting on the inside. He pled with the Lord in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Right? This is, this is a kind of a confession of, like, I am dry. I am parched. I am barely holding on. God, my God, where are you? I just, I just need your presence to fill me, to refill me again. He says, My tears have been my food day and night. Verse 5. Why? And then he says to himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. And so... Here it says, Jonah says, my life was fainting away, but I remember the Lord. What do you do when, when life, when you're panting, when you're fainting, when you're in this kind of dire situation? What Jonah did is he remembered his God. It says, I remembered the Lord, right? He could have remembered, first of all, just times past. Think back in your own life, like when you, maybe when you first knew the Lord, or think of a time of just spiritual revival. Or think of a time when God blessed you, right? I can think of times in my life where, like, when, <laughs> when our twins were born, that was when, like, at that point, we were holding the family together, but at that point, it was like, whatever, everybody, take my kids here, take them there, help me, give me stuff, I'll take it, I don't care, I have no pride anymore, right? And God used that time, right? And he, again, it's one of these amazing things where he used it for me. I learned, you know, how to be, I, I was certainly humbled. We were learned how to deal with things, we learned to depend on people. I learned how helpful certain acts of charity or help are to others, which changed my soul. I learned some home construction things by people helping me fix my house, stuff like that, but all sorts of different ways. The point being, um, remember these past times of God's blessing, right? That's the first thing. Secondly is remember the promises that God makes. So even apart from your own experience, 
the precious promises that God makes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God knows that you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. God is treating you as a son, right? Don't, don't um, despise God's discipline. He's treating you as a son. He's treating you as one of his people. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back, fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, right? We are, like, a, remember these promises of God. How do you know that you're a child of God? You're being disciplined, and you pray, right? And even if, you're, even if it's a burden on you, right, you should be super encouraged by that and those promises. And so what do you do? What if you're in this position? Remember these things and draw close to God. You know, again, sometimes when you're in this position, you can't even pick up a Bible. You can't, you know, you don't feel like listening to a sermon. You don't, whatever, whatever, whatever goes on. But we just need to remember, this is where life is in communing with God. And sometimes um, we need to draw near to God. It says in James, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We need to humble ourselves and just trust the methods that God has given us to be near him. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. What does the devil do? Right? One thing that he does is he, um, he tells us our sin is so bad that it can't be forgiven. Resist that. He tells us that God is so holy that he can't possibly accept you. Resist that. Right? He takes the truth and just bends it out of, out of shape. Resist that, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right? So we just gotta, we got to find a way to pull back to God. Remember his past grace. Remember how you've been fed and cared for by him. And that can encourage you to turn back to him. Next, um, how does he praise God? He prays God as a God who loves. Verse 8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So steadfast love, what, the, what other translations call God's loving kindness, is this ongoing, never-failing, covenant love of God for his people. And God is the only one who provides that. What are idols? Idols are just anything that we depend on to get us through the day, to comfort us, to, to, that we depend on. Um, it could be, it could be um, you know, where do we turn? You know, do we reach for our phone to kind of pass the time and dull the sensations? Do we reach for the bottle? Do we reach for the refrigerator? What do you do to take the edge off? find relief, find comfort, any of these things. These are idols. And the one thing about idols, of course, they don't deliver, but they certainly don't deliver steadfast love. And if we turn to these idols, if we turn to anything besides the one true God, we're forsaking our one shot at mercy. Again, Jonah praised God because I'll, pray, I'll, you know, I'll turn to you again at your holy temple. If there is no God, there is no temple, there is no hope for mercy and steadfast love. Jonah is repenting of his idol, maybe a righteous God who has no place for Gentiles or for sinners. I'm not sure. But these false idols cannot deliver. And this God who loves is the only, is the only source of that steadfast love. And then finally, uh, verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. God is worthy. The last thing he says about God is that he is worthy of a fully committed life. He is worthy of total life commitment. This is dedication of Jonah's life to God, and presumably he's probably committed his life to God already. He's a prophet of God, so I don't know. He's probably dedicated his life to God, but he's weak. We're weak, right? Have you, have you kind of went, gone through times where it's like, all right, God, you are awesome. I cannot believe how I feel right now. I can't believe what you've done. I can't believe what you promised. I can't believe what you taught me. I am yours. 
And then, uh, I don't know, a week later, a day later, right? It's just that, de- that same, that same uh, fervency, certainly the same dedication isn't there. And we're going to see that Jonah is not perfect in his, per- in his faith or dedication, right? But this is his declaration that God is worthy of our full commitment. Uh, from a New Testament perspective, of course, Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of this God who has done so much for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jonah's seen God save. He knows that God is trustworthy. He knows God is gracious and merciful. He hears, he forgives. Um, and his response is dedication to the Lord. And again, I want to encourage you, never give up. All right, that's the kind of part of what Luke 15 teaches us. Finally, the whole summary of this whole prayer is the last line in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Is this not what he's been saying? And I'm not going to go over it anymore because I've been going over it. But it's the whole summary of the prayer. It could be the, uh, could be the key verse of Jonah. And really, it's kind of the whole point of the Bible. Know that salvation is of the Lord. He is the one who saves. And so the prayer is concluded. Jonah's still in the fish, right? But he, he is a new man, right? In these three days, he has gone from bitter, resentful, hard-hearted to rejoicing in the Lord, still in the same circumstance. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so the work that God appointed for Jonah's soul has now been accomplished, and so time in the fish is done. He doesn't need it any longer. This time of trial and discipline is over, and the sovereign God commands the fish, and it returns Jonah to the shore, right? So sovereign grace of God. So in our last couple of minutes here, um, I want to consider this. So one greater than Jonah. So obviously Jonah is a, an incredible picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in a ton of ways. Matt pointed out last week that he was actually born like right over the hill from Jesus and Nazareth. So they're from the same neck of the woods. Um, obviously, from where it says he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Does that sound familiar? In Matthew 12, it says, um, you know, Jesus was, the scribes and Pharisees were giving Jesus a hard time. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? Jesus is drawing this direct comparison. And incidentally, I didn't really go over like, well, is this a real fish? Is this a real story and all that? But some people, you know, think like, if I can prove in the Bible that there's a funny fish story, then maybe I don't have to believe the rest of the Bible. Well, I'm not going to go into like all the scientific stuff that people kind of say. I will say this, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Right? This is God's miraculous salvation of a prophet through an incredible means. And our Lord Jesus Christ being in the belly of the earth three days and three nights is God's miraculous salvation of an entire people through an amazing uh, means. And there's tons of comparisons. And I would encourage you, it says up there, Psalm 22, read through Jonah 2, read through Psalm 22. Deep distress. Physical distress, deep spiritual distress. God's face turned away, apparently in the case of Jonah, but truly in the case of Jesus Christ. Like Jonah, Jesus, it wasn't the physical distress, but it was the spiritual distress that caused Jesus to cry out. 
Jonah was surrounded by waves. Jesus was surrounded by his enemies, truly. And in the, right in the middle of verse 22, there's a turning point, right? Jesus' work is accomplished, and he cries out. Like, and at that point, he just starts praising his father. He says, people are going to turn to me. I'm going to come and get my people. I'm going to come and get the great company. I am going to be preached to the generations going forward. And so it's an amazing uh, comparison to see, to see what happens in that. So just to wrap up, um, two things. I want you to appreciate God's word. And just very briefly, God's word is where light, God, it's how God delivers life, right? God delivered new life to Jonah through his word. Um, if you're sitting under the teaching of God's word, there is hope, there is life. And encouragement to kids on summer break, right? Use this opportunity to learn God's word, memorize, meditate, use it to pray. Parents, be encouraged that over a long 10, 15, 20 years of teaching your kids, that stuff really does get into hearts. In fact, I'm one of those hearts that didn't get it until I was in his 20s, right? But all the stuff that my mom taught me exploded into like beautiful, like full color, right? So be encouraged, right? There is power in God's word. Don't be discouraged yourself and parents don't be discouraged from teaching your kids. But secondly, appreciate God's sovereign grace, right? That's what this book is about. And you know, don't resent the difficult times, right? These are God's ways of doing something. He could be saving you from something you don't even know about yet. Um, but God is sovereign, and he cares. So don't resent those times. Remember God's past grace, right? If you remember specific instances, if you remember God's promise, or if you just remember, this is how I came to be in God's presence, and put yourself back into that same kind of place, there's hope. Share with others. In fact, I would hope that maybe afterwards, ask each other, how is What's a great memory that you have of the Lord working in your life? But finally, continue turning back to the Lord. Um, God forgives. Um, and again, Luke 15, that shepherd you know, comes back to that sheep, and it says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. So don't worry about turning back again and again and again and again. When Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7, he's just reflecting what the Lord already does for us. So let's pray. Father, you are, you are powerful. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your plans are beyond what we can comprehend. You see everything. We see very little. But Father, the parts that we can see, would you just help us to see all the more? Help us to realize the work that you are doing in the lives of each one of us. Help us to see even what you're doing in the lives of those around us. Father, for those that are in deep distress right now, would you find a way to encourage them? Get them your word delivered. Um, help them find other Christians who can help them walk through these things. Father, you provide life. You hear. You love. You're true. You are, you are the source of that steadfast love, the mercy and grace uh, that we need. Help us to remember. In Jesus' name, amen.